uh, and 13 times throughout the entire chapter, we see that God says, I am the Lord your God. Maybe you heard it as I was reading this passage. He repeats over and over, I am the Lord your God. On the surface, this is uh, just at least the mere title of who God is. God is a covenant God of Israel who has established this covenant with them. But it harkens back to something more. And it's, it's more widely known and famous to the Israelites. They may have heard, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And where does this come from? It's, it's the preamble to the Ten Commandments. God is using this reference, this, this nugget of knowledge that they would have known and, and heard and been, been familiar with very easily and readily to hearken them back to something greater. And we know this from famous speeches all the time in modern culture. Today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I might have been given a bad break, but I have gotten an awful lot to live for. Lou Gehrig. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Abraham Lincoln. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King Jr. So we know that just from a few famous words, we are kind of transported back to that time, that era, the context in which that person is speaking, and all the weight, all the burden that comes with it. So when God here in Leviticus 19 says, I am the Lord your God, the Israelites would have been remembered, this is the one who brought us out of slavery. This is the one who delivered us. He's hearkening back to this historic redemption that happened that led to the formation of God's people, the nation of Israel. The one who is calling is the one who has redeemed them and set them apart to be his so that he may dwell among them. So more than just a series of arbitrary laws that will follow as we read Leviticus 19, laid down by some distant authority far away from us, the Lord our God is the one who loves us, the one who freed us from slavery, the one who is giving these commands. And so we are led, we are compelled and convicted to obey because this is our loving Heavenly Father. We come to obey because we we love the things that our Father loves, and we come to hate the things that our Father hates. And so for us, as a church, as the modern Israel, modern-day Israel, when we hear this title, this preamble, I am the Lord your God, what hearkens your mind? Where are you led back to? When you hear of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, what testimony, what story comes to mind as you think back on how you were brought to where you are now? I always remember growing up in the faith, in the church, and our family always grew up going to church, and, and that was maybe something that I took for granted, because after a while, I began to tell people, and my testimony was, was mostly about how I came to faith, and how I came to that realization, and how I came to know Jesus. And I downplayed a lot of what happened with my family, my parents. And then come my senior year of college, uh, my last grandparent, my my mother's mother, my grandmother, passed away. And after she passed away, we spent some time as a family with with my parents and my cousins, just reflecting 
on her life. And I began to hear stories that I had never heard or never known of my grandmother. I began to hear stories of her life, of, of when she was a child. I began to hear stories of her faith. Endless hours praying for her nine grandchildren. Episodes of her overwhelming generosity to the poor, something that I never knew that she did, nor did she take the time to explicitly tell me that she did. And as I was listening to these stories, I quickly realized that my family's faith, my own faith, was not my own. It was a a legend of faith that happened in my family for generations. And so that when I think about, I am the Lord your God, or Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, it is more than just this bubble that is Naman Cho. It extends to my parents, it extends to my grandparents, it extends to the church community that was there for me when I was in youth group, it extends to the InterVarsity campus chapter that was there when, when I was in college and, and when I wanted to turn away from God. And so when we look and we think about, I am the Lord your God, Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, what does that harken your mind back to? And how much more bigger and expansive is it as we think about who God is and who we are. I am the Lord, your God. This is the one who calls. This is the one who is making these commandments and calling us to obey. And so then as we move on to this call to holiness that God is making, we see here, starting in verse 1 and 2, if you'll read again with me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we'll stop there. God commands the Israelites, You shall be holy because I am holy. God was a holy God, and and literally, holy meant to be set apart, to be unique, to be different. And we know this about God because He is the creator of all of life itself, the creator of the universe. And the Israelites knew this. So holiness was an essential part of God's nature, of God's character. So the command for Israel to be holy is so that God, who is a holy God, who was perfect, who was free of sin, who was set apart, in order to be with other people, they needed to be holy as well. You shall be holy, for I am holy, free of sin, set apart. And then we see in verse 19, it says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. So we see here the commingling that is prohibited in order to maintain this holiness, this holiness of God. But the real undergirding truth here is that, yes, God is holy and he commands us to be holy in order that he might dwell with us. With the reality of of the Israelites as a sinful and broken people, with us, human beings as sinful and broken people, this is grace. This is good news that God would want to dwell with us. So that this command to be holy is not an arbitrary burden, but it's the reality that God wishes to be our God, to dwell amongst us, to show us grace. You shall be holy for I am holy. And then continuing on in verses 3 and 4, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. 
Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any god. Cast the metal. I am the Lord your God. What may seem like casual commands that are thrown there, but we know, and these are very familiar, that these are actual commandments from the Ten Commandments itself. So he's doing again. He first started with a preamble for the Ten Commandments, and now he's quoting direct quotes from the Ten Commandments itself. If you want to dig a little further, you can nitpick at which commandments God chose. He chose to honor our parents, to keep the Sabbath, and to prevent from worshiping idols. Some commentators will say it starts from the home. It goes out towards a spiritual command, and then it works at the issue of the heart. But however you want to read or interpret this, the reality is that this is a holistic scope, an all-encompassing scope of holiness. Holiness in every sphere of our lives. So that when Jesus Christ is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what is the greatest law in the New Testament, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But the contradiction, the reality that we rub up against is that nobody can be holy. Joseph mentioned it earlier during our confession. That even as we reflect back on our lives, even as we reflect on just this past week or maybe even this morning, nobody is perfect. Nobody is holy. Nobody is completely set apart from sin. And that was God's plan all along. And so that in order to fulfill the law, he would have to fulfill it himself in Jesus. I am the Lord your God. I am Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and that your quest for holiness is futile because it is completed in me. And so we are called to believe in Christ. So that this call to holiness and this call to belief in Christ is one and the same. So that morphs our understanding of trying to adhere to this call to holiness, trying to be holy more than this unattainable burden that we have into actually a precious gift that we've been given. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What are ways in which we view our faith, our identities in Christ, our call to holiness as precious gifts and not heavy burdens? What are the ways in which we are privileged to be where we are, to be doing the things that we're doing, to be stewarding the gifts that God has given us because of what Christ has done for us? This goes back to obedience, obeying God, loving the things that God loves and coming to hate the things that he hates. Now, I said in the beginning of the, before reading this, or after reading this passage, that this entire sermon was about hospitality, and I haven't almost mentioned a single word about hospitality, because it's, it's all established on who God is and this call to holiness. I had a lot of difficulty trying to find a specific passage on on what it means to be hospitable, what it looks like to be a hospitable church, because that's because all throughout Scripture, hospitality is not just a, a right in and of itself, but it's always cast under this umbrella of the love that Christ has shown us and this call to holiness. 
It's an extension of God's character. It's an extension of the renewal and revival that happens because of what Christ has done for us. And so now we can, we can look at hospitality and what this passage has to say about it. Um, we'll start in verses 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And jumping down to verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So now we get at the meat of what God is commanding us and how to treat the stranger, the sojourner. How to be hospitable. The context of the word sojourner used here in, in ancient Israel could have been translated as a stranger, as foreigner, as alien, as somebody who was landless, somebody who was economically disadvantaged. We see that because it's lumped in verses 9 through 10 with the poor and the sojourner. Uh, the non-Israelite, the other, the person who is not like us. And so that when we look at verses 9 through 10, when we, when we see these gleaning laws, we know that Israel to be a, a very agricultural nation, we, we see these gleaning laws. The harvesters would have, at the time of harvest, went through their fields and, and gathered all their crops and their fruits. And then as they're doing so, if they weren't meticulous enough, things would fall to the floor. As, as it's mentioned, grapes would fall to the floor, grains would fall to the floor. But God's specific command is to not go back around and pick up what you left off. Not to be thorough. So in a sense, thorough harvesting reflects coveting and greed in God's sense. And liberal, almost lackadaisical harvesting reflects generosity and hospitality. We almost see this in the image of the parable of the sower, where the sower is just spreading seeds liberally, without any, seemingly without any care or attention to where it's going. So when we look towards these gleaning laws, not to go back and comb over everything that's fallen, we're also harkened back to the narrative in Ruth. In Ruth 2 and what happens there. We see Naomi, a, a widowed uh, Israelite who, whose husband has died, now whose two sons have died. And, and she comes back to Israel with her non-Israelite, her Moabite daughter-in-law, who, who, uh, Ruth, who, who joins her. And in order to survive, in order to even get a little bit of food, Naomi commands Ruth to go out into the fields of Boaz, uh, uh, a relative of, of their family, of her husband, and said, glean what you can because the harvest was happening at the time. Glean what you can so that we can at least gain some food. And she's gleaning and gleaning. And Boaz follows these commands from Leviticus 19. He says, Neither shall you gather your, your field right up to its edge or gather the gleanings after your harvest. He's allowing Ruth to, to scavenge something to eat. But Boaz goes way beyond this call to the sojourner that's found here in Leviticus 19. He invites Ruth into his home for a meal. He sends food back for Naomi to to have to eat as well. And ultimately, he redeems Naomi and Ruth and marries Ruth. And we know that story to go on to be the lineage that was David. 
King David. So we see from Boaz's not only adherence to what seemed like a passive law, like just make sure you do this and, and, and don't be too thorough, but he, t- he turned it into an active commandment where, where he went above and beyond the call of, of holiness and hospitality, and he showed Ruth grace and mercy. Going above and beyond what's just written in the law there. And verses 33 and 34 seem like they do the same. The commands are, uh, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Not do him wrong. It seems like the bare minimum that, that we can do. Like just, even if you didn't interact with him, you would not be doing him wrong. But it goes further. It says, treat him as a native among you. Be unbiased. Treat him as you would your fellow countrymen. And then a step further to say, love him as yourself, which was an extension of uh, verse 18 that was not listed there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go out of your way to love this person. And we see in these commands parallels that Jesus gives in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Going out of our way to, to show love and be hospitable to others, even though it may cost us. Even though it, we may have to sacrifice a lot, time, money, effort, status, other people judging you about it. Go out of your way to love him as yourself. And so that God sums all of these commands to be hospitable under the motive towards the end there of verse 34. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God gives these commands for Israelites to interact with sojourners, to interact with strangers and aliens, because they were once sojourners and aliens and slaves in the land of Egypt. He's propositioning them to know and hearken back to what God did for them and how that looks like for them to treat others, to treat sojourners. So that when we look at the context of the word sojourner again, it can mean much more than just alien or or foreigner. Some commentators say that these sojourners connoted naturalized citizens rather than the casual wandering nomad. Sojourners turned citizens of Israel because they were circumcised, they had committed to God's law, and they were made available the privileges of being a covenant community member and protected under its law. So regardless of, of where you stand of how you want to interpret this word, we know that all throughout the Pentateuch, all throughout these first five books of the Bible, Leviticus included, God's law had built-in clauses to consider non-Israelites to be a part of the covenant community and to receive the blessings of God. God's grace and the grafting in of Gentiles happened in the Old Testament. It didn't just happen in the New That the very character of God, his holiness, the extension of his holiness, showing hospitality and generosity to others are found in the very laws themselves. So that we, when we read this today, the church, the extension of Israel, we know the direct result of God's hospitality. We love because he first loved us. We are hospitable because he was first hospitable with us in Christ. So as we think about this for modern day 2019, 
city reform context. What, what does that mean? How do we apply these laws? I wish it could be to say, well, be involved in the welcoming committee. We're, we're starting it up again. I, I would love to do that as, as a pastor who is now in charge of the welcoming ministry. Come join us. I wish it would be to, to say, invite more people into your homes. Be hospitable. Invite more pastors into your homes and, and, and cook for them a meal. They seem a little biased there. Um, and it's, it, it could be the, at the very least of these things. But I would love to ask some diagnostic questions of, of what it, before we even think about how to be hospitable, is that what are the, what are the definitions, what are the terms, what are the dynamics that, that were happening in Israel that also can relate to today? Namely to say, in what ways are we the sojourner? And in what ways are we the native? Are we the Israelite? In what ways are we a minority? In what ways are we the majority? So whether you're thinking about race, whether you're thinking about class or gender or life stage or where you are or your educational background or your political views, what ways, maybe even as a community, do we stand on the majority side of things? In what ways are we the minority side of things? And so in the ways that we are the majority, how do our actions as the majority ostracize the minority? What are the subtle and subconscious ways in which we talk, in which we think, in which we act, in which we make decisions that may seem inhospitable? What are, what are ways, even small, that we, get to, that we can begin to cross those dividing lines of being in the majority or minority? What are ways in which maybe even the way that we worship on Sundays may be inhospitable, unwelcoming towards people who are not used to this context? And these are very hard questions to ask, even for myself. There are ways in which I find myself in the minority on some of these lines, but also I find myself on the majority in some of these different lines. And it starts by even asking those questions. What are ways that am, am I a sojourner and what are ways in which I am a native that may or may not be hospitable towards, towards those who don't think like me, who don't look like me, who don't act like me? And how does our identity as ones who are called by the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who redeemed you in Jesus, how does our identity in that God and this call to be holy change the way we answer those, those questions? To give a little bit more of a direction, I want, to say, I, would, I want to go as far as to say the trajectory of hospitality happens in a downward direction. The trajectory of hospitality happens in a downward direction. That is to say, those in the majority have a burden to reach across those dividing lines, to be hospitable towards those in the minority, not the other way around. We cannot expect those who are ostracized, who are wandering, who are different than us, different than us, who look different than us, to, to make that leap. So that when we think about Sunday worship, when we think about our church community, when we think about the things that make up who we are, it, happens, it has to happen in the way of grace. So hospitality that happens amongst those who are our peers or who are just like us probably isn't hospitality at all. It may be just fellowship. Or hospitality that happens in a way of, in an upward direction, 
has to question, are there ulterior motives going on? Is, is there something that I'm wanting to get out of this relationship? How does our hospitality have this reaching downward trajectory in which when we look at Philippians 2 where it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The burden of hospitality happens with those who are natives, with those who may have a lot to lose. So when we think about hospitality, we we ask the questions, what is this going to cost us? How can we sacrifice to be hospitable to others just as Christ sacrificed on our behalf so that he could show us grace and love? These are very hard questions to ask. And my prayer in my first first year of being here at our church, the first year of of doing ministry at Carnegie Mellon is that we might start asking these questions. We might start crossing these dividing lines. Maybe you never even know they existed. And maybe we didn't know to label ourselves as either native or sojourner. But the reality of, of who God is is that he is in the business of showing hospitality of others, even if it cost him the life of his son, Jesus. And so that my hope and prayer is that this would not land on you as a burden, as a way of self-defeat, as a way of judging yourself and and every other action that you've done, but as a way of calling you to this precious gift of holiness that we have been offered in Jesus. That we love because he first loved us, that we are hospitable because he was first hospitable with us. Let me pray.